Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Greenville. My name is Charlie Boyd. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, we're all very glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, I trust that you had a great Thanksgiving with family and friends. Uh, we had our three kids and spouses in town with us, along with our six wonderfully energetic grand, uh, grandkids. There they all are. And we celebrated Thanksgiving and Christmas because this Christmas, all of our kids will be at the in-laws, and so none of them are coming home, and so that was different, but it was fun. They got to open presents. It was a, it was a big deal, and the greatest thing about it is I don't have to put up a tree. So, um, and, and, uh, you know, it was interesting. At one point during our time together, the grandkids were running, and they were playing. They're having fun. They're screaming and playing, and uh, my Apple Watch sent me this notification. Loud environment, <laughs> sound levels hit 90 decibels. Around 30 minutes at this level can cause temporary hearing loss. Now, to give you a point of reference, 90, 90 dB is as loud as a jackhammer. And so uh, my ears are still ringing from all of that. Anyway, if you're just, uh, just joining with us, we're continuing our series and the New Testament book of Ephesians, which was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it was a letter written to uh, the house church in Ephesus around 62 AD. It's about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in this particular book, this letter, Paul is revealing to us God's plan for God's church. Because you see, the God of the universe is up to something big in this world. He's, he, he's making spiritually dead people alive through faith in Christ. And he's bringing them into his church, uh, a church, the, the, the unified community of people from different ages and stages uh, in life, different ethnicities, different, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And all of these people come together as one under the name of Jesus. And they, we, are meant to partner with God in his business of advancing the gospel of Jesus in the world by the way that we live with each other and, uh, and love each other. And we're in a section of the book now where Paul is breaking all this down into kind of easy to understand uh, life principles, if you would, that help us better understand what living with each other and loving each other looks like. And most important of all, Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 18, that the new life God has called us to is a life that's lived under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He says, and don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, which simply means crazy, stupid self-indulgence. And uh, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he begins to unpack what being Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, Spirit-influenced looks like. And he, he talks first about uh, Spirit-filled worship in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And Jim did an awesome job in unpacking that for us a couple of weeks back. I think it was maybe the best message I've ever heard Jim preach, so if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to it. Yeah, absolutely, really, really good. And then he goes on in the next section from uh, chapter five, verse 21, to all the way through six, nine, to talk about spirit-influenced relationships. And then he talks, he closes out the book in chapter six, verse 10 through 20, to talk about spirit-empowered warfare, what we call spiritual warfare. And today, we're going to continue to look at um, spirit-influenced relationships. And, and last week, again, Jim did a fantastic job uh, teaching us through what Christ-shaped marriage 
looks like. And uh, so that leaves in this section children and, uh, and, and, and masters and slaves. And now, the interesting thing is, uh, about nine times out of ten, when preachers teach through the book of Ephesians, they get to this section, they do a sermon on marriage, a sermon on parenting, and a sermon on work, which is exactly what I did when I preached through it way back in um, uh, 2004. And I'm not saying that's wrong, um, but as I've studied this passage over the last two weeks, I've come to see that I believe that Paul has one big idea in mind as he applies spirit-filled living to wives and husbands, uh, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And he's, he's making one point. He's not going into a whole lot of practical, applicational detail of how all this works. But there is a reason that he centers in on these three relationship pairs. The question is, what is that one point that he's trying to make? What is he trying to help us see with these three examples of home-based relationships? Now, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through the passage, and then we'll come back and break it down. But what I want to do is I want to go back all the way to the beginning of chapter 5, to get the bigger context of where this whole thing is going. So in chapter five, verse one, he, he writes, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And he says, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I see that, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's the one big 30,000 foot idea of this section. And then he goes on to show us what that looks like and how it's possible in chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, and what I just read a minute ago, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is crazy, stupid, self-indulgent. But here it is, be filled with the Spirit. So he's saying, a life of loving others the way Jesus loved us and gave himself for us is a life that is lived under the influence of the Spirit. You see in this? Okay, so what does that look like? Well, living under the influence of the Spirit, loving others as Christ loved us, looks like this, verse 21. It looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, what does that look like? Now he's gonna apply it. Verse 22, wives, and the word submit is not there it's picked up from verse 21. So he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands. In other words, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. All right, now skip down to chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Thank you. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse five, bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good attitude as to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Now, again, this passage gets into the specifics of what spirit-influenced relationships look like, what a Jesus kind of sacrificial love looks like in action. And I know as I was reading through this passage, there are things in this passage that make us cringe like uh, this whole thing about wives submitting to their husbands and this other thing about masters and slaves. And at first glance, as you read a passage like this, it can be really easy, like at a surface level, to look at, the, look at this passage and go, yep, there he is, Apostle Paul. He's anti-women and pro-slavery. And for some of you, you read, it, you read this or you hear it read, and maybe you're visiting you're, or you're still kicking the tires of Christianity and you, you hear a passage like this and you go to the, you say, see there, that's exactly why I want nothing to do with Christianity. And I understand that. And for some of you, there's another problem because a whole bunch of you are single. And you look at these three pairs and you go, great, another message on the family. I mean, you know, we're gonna talk about marriage, we're gonna talk about parenting, and look, I'm single, I'm not married, I don't have a spouse, I don't have kids, and I definitely don't own slaves, so I'm out. Now, before you jump to any of those conclusions, I want you to stay with me because I really believe and my hope is that as we, as we dive into this passage and we take a look at what Paul is saying here, that we're going to realize when we look at this passage in the context of that time, we're going to realize that there is incredible application to all of our lives. Because when we look at this passage, passage in its original first century context, we're going to be able to see that Paul's one big idea was unbelievably cutting edge for the first century society. Now, one of the things that I, I say here from time to time, uh, a phrase I like to use to help us better understand the Bible in its original context is, I say something like this, the Bible was written for us, not to us. The Bible was written for us, not to us. And I think I first heard that from an Old Testament scholar named John Walton. The Bible was written for us, not to us. In other words, we weren't the original audience. Yeah, we believe the Bible is written for us. Scripture is timeless, completely applicable to our lives today. But it wasn't written to people living in the 21st century. It was written to people living in the first century. And obviously... The first century culture was very different from our time and, and our day and time. It was as different as a modern smartphone is from the first phone that I remember using, and that was a rotary dial phone. How many of you remember using these old phones? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was dating and I would, I would get the phone number of a new girl that I wanted to call up and ask out on a date. I'd dial and dial all those numbers till the last number, and I would sit there and hold it, thinking, am I brave enough to let go of the dial? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, and then you let it go, and then you, you stop it down, and, you're like, and then you do it again, and you do it again. 
um, your smartphone, now here's the deal. Your smartphone, as great as it is, and as much as you know about how it works, it doesn't help you know how to use uh, that, the uh, rotary dial phone. And I think there's one even, uh, like the other phone that goes way back before that. Let's see, we have the picture of the other phone. Yeah, now think about that. There is no rotary dial. You're, you're cranking that and saying, Sarah, would you connect me to Floyd at the barbershop? You know, um, some of you know what I'm talking about there too. So, And so, uh, but y- y- your smartphone doesn't prepare to, y- to use these phones because in order to use that rotary phone of a bygone era, you gotta understand something about how the telephone system worked back in the day. Like, you gotta know what party lines are and uh, collect calls and talking to operators to have them place long distance calls for you. Now, it works the same way with scripture, but even more so because we're not talking about going back 60 years. We're talking about going back to AD 60, 2,000 years ago. And when you come to a passage like this, if you don't get your mind around how life worked in the first century world, then you're gonna conclude that the Bible is out of date and out of touch. So I'm asking you to lay aside everything you think you know about this passage, and I'm asking you to take off your 21st century lens and put on a first century lens in order to understand what Paul was really talking about when he talked about these subjects that can cause us to cringe in disgust today. But just like uh, if you jump back to the time of that rotary dial phone from the early 50s and 60s and 70s, if you put yourself back in that day, what you would realize that back then, that rotary dial phone was cutting edge. It was cutting edge technology. And in the same way, what Paul is saying in this passage, in the first century, was radical, countercultural, cutting edge stuff. And so we've got to put on this 20, put on a first century lens, take off the 21st century lens to understand it. Now, the main thing that you need to get in your mind that life in first century Rome, that was an awful time and place to live. Uh, uh, back, like back then, slavery was completely legal. Back at that time, children were basically seen as property. And it would change a little bit for little boys as they grew up and became heirs of their father's property and goods. But for women, that never changed. And wives, most wives had no rights whatsoever. And, and, and then there was a hierarchical abuse at every level of society all the way up uh, to Caesar. And that was the world uh, that this, these people were living in. This was This was what life was like for that group of Christians meeting in a house church in Ephesus. Now, again, I just said house church. You gotta remember that the the church that people went to back back in 62 AD, it looked nothing like what we do this morning, which is fine. There's no instructions in the Bible on how to do church, not not that many. Um, But back then, early Christians met in homes, usually uh, a larger home owned by one of the more wealthy members of the congregation. And as Paul writes this letter to this house church, he's getting more and more specific as to what it means to live a gospel informed lifestyle, spirit-influenced lifestyle. And he's using examples that would make sense to them. They're meeting in a house church, and so it makes sense that he would focus on relationships that were common in the homes of these people. Now, if you look at the beginning of this section, if you have a New International Version Bible, 
At the top, it says something like uh, household instructions. Another way that people talked about this back in the day was they call this a household code. The order of the natural relationships that existed in the homes of the people in that day and time, specifically in the home of an urban city dweller. And those natural relationships in the home would be husbands, wives, parents, and children, and, th- and this may surprise you, but it would be masters and slaves because practically everyone owned slaves in that, in that time and day. Now, you, you gotta get the picture because, I mean, you can look around and see how we're sitting here today. You gotta get this picture in your mind. You got all these different, different types of people uh, sitting together in this house church. No other place in the Roman Empire did men and women and slaves and free and young and old sit together. They never, they never were together in any way, shape, or form. And here they are sitting in the same church. And they're listening to Ephesians being read out loud. And what you need to understand is that Paul, what he's writing here, he's writing in a way where he hopes it's gonna change the culture of that time. He's writing in a way in hopes it'll change the culture of that time. Now think about it, every level of society, within culture, within family, within politics, at every level of society was all based on hierarchical domination and abuse. And so when he starts in verse 21 and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that is, I just can't tell you how countercultural that was because that goes against hierarchical uh, uh, domination. And, and the people in that church, when they heard, what do, you, what do you mean submit to one another? They would be going, what? What's he talking about? It, it, was, it, was so, it was as hard for them to understand what Paul was saying as it is for us in the 21st century to look back and try to understand it. But what he's doing is this. He wants to give the people in that church a gospel lens through which they view these three home-based relationships, a lens that was very different from the hierarchical culture of that day. Because remember, hierarchical abuse was just the norm in that time. And so he begins with the marriage relationship, wives and husbands. Now, again, Jim did an amazing job unpacking this passage and I'm not gonna re-preach that sermon, but I do wanna go a little bit deeper into the cultural context of that day because what he says here about wives and husbands, if the, the one big idea from this is going to carry forward into children and, and parents and slaves and masters. So we gotta get our minds around this. It all ties back to verse 21 What does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? So look at verse two. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he's the savior. And as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now I'm gonna stop there, because again, he did a really good job walking us through the whole passage. But what I want you to see here from the context, back in that time, there were all kinds of people, uh, politicians, philosophers, different people who were writing about these 
household codes. And when they were giving a people a picture of what uh, all these relationships were supposed to look like in their writings, they would just put patriarch or pater familia at the top. That's the male head of the family, the male head of the household. And they would put it at the top of the pyramid and everyone else came under it, kind of like this. So you have the patriarch, who's that? Well, he's the husband, he's the father, the master. And the subordinates were the wives, the children, and, and the slaves. And the children and the slaves. The order of a typical home followed the order of the Roman Empire itself. And for all intents and purposes, the male patriarch of the family was like Caesar to his family. These were many, M-I-N-I, Roman empires in each home. This was the accepted order of the day. Everyone lived according to this code and stepping outside this hierarchy brought swift retribution. What it was was a mutual relationship of unequals. You had rulers, authorities, and, and then you had subordinates. Again, you got get your mind around this, put on that first century lens. This was life in the city of Ephesus. This was life for those early Christians who came to church that day when the letter was read publicly. And everything Paul is about to say will work subversively to undermine and undo that hierarchical mindset and the hierarchical abuse that people were so used to living under. Now hear me, the person who Paul most has in mind, the people in Paul's crosshair in the room that day are the patriarchs. Everybody else, he's just saying, just in the subordinate roles, everything he says to them is live out your role, but just do it like you're doing it to Christ. But he, the, the, the person that he's after, where change is going to, necessary change because of the hierarchy, are the male heads of the families. Now, as strange as this sounds, what I'm about to say sounds, that's why he begins talking to the wives. Like, say it with me. You see, we're like, he starts with wives and goes, oh yeah, Paul's anti-women because he's saying like wives, submit to your husband. That's right off the bat he does that. No, 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 no. In that day, for a woman who was a wife to be addressed in a public meeting was giving her incredible dignity. This was not done. And it was the same with children, the same with slaves who were people that everyone would overlook. He's giving them dignity and honor in this moment by publicly addressing them first in each pair. Now look, I know that when we read about wives submitting to husbands, that's a hard thing for most wives to hear. And I, I you know, I, I, I've been in ministry for 30, over 35 years and I've performed a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of premarital counseling and a lot of times I'll, in, in, in the premarital counseling, I'll ask something like, so what are you looking forward to most in, in marriage? Well, and never have I once had a woman say, I'm just so looking forward to submitting to this guy. I mean, I mean, it's not, that's not high on anyone's list, you know? And when you read a passage like this, it feels like women just get a raw deal. Like, see, he's, Paul's just anti-women. And it seems like husbands get off easy. And husbands, just love your wife. You just love her, you know? Well, guys, don't go there. I mean, you deserve to be smacked upside the head if you're headed there in your mind right there because here's the thing. Paul writes three verses to women and nine to, to the husband, uh, three to the wives and nine to the husbands. 
And he says to husbands, love your wife just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, what does that look like, Paul? Well, he actually unpacks that uh, in another letter uh, written to another house church in the city of Philippi in chapter two. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, though he was in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be made use for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So how did Jesus display his love for us? It's the ultimate message of the gospel that Paul's been laying out this entire letter, that Jesus was the one who did not see uh, 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 hanging on to his God uh, powers. He did not grasp those. He gave them up. And look at it, what it says. It says he made himself nothing. Out of his amazing love for us, he came underneath and became a servant, lifting us up to give us what we could never get on our own in order to make our lives better, to give us new life. Wives are called to submit, which simply means to come under your husband to support him and encourage him and lift him up. It's what Paul tells everybody to do in verse 21. I don't know why this is such a big deal. Everybody's supposed to submit to one another. He's just telling wives to do what he's told everybody to do. But men are called to give up, husbands are called to give up everything, everything they have, everything they are, in order to come underneath their wives to love them and serve them and come alongside of them and build them up and that is what submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ looks like for a husband. You see, like if you were to look at these two roles that Paul is laying out here, for both wives and husbands, it's supposed to be this dance, like this natural coming under one another to love and to support and lift up. And what he's saying is that the gospel destroys this idea of a mutual relationship of unequals. No, in a Christian marriage, you have a mutual relationship of equals with each other, and each one looking out for the interests of the other. So the wife says, I'll come under you to support you. The husband says, I'll come under you to serve you and lift you up. That's the picture of marriage that Paul gives us here. And both wife and husband are going to struggle with it because it goes against the natural tendency to look out for our own self-interest. And back in that time, in the world of hierarchical abuse, to the men in the room, it would have blown their minds. Paul, what are you saying? This is not the way we live. He's saying, but this is how the gospel teaches you to live. That's, what a, that's the picture of a gospel-informed marriage. Now, he goes on to talk about uh, children and parents. Starts with children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so now as we look at these three different relationships wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, master. It can be easy to see where people get frustrated with this whole wife and husband one. It can be very easy to see how people 
are very unsettled by the whole discussion about slaves and masters, and we'll come to that in just a minute. As we read this stuff on kids, you know, like students and parents, we're, we're kind of like, well, that sounds pretty spot on to me. I mean, you know, like everybody's, nobody has a hard time with, you know, chapter six, verses one through four. I mean, like parents, uh, bring your kids up with appropriate loving discipline and nurture their faith in Christ, encourage them, build them up, don't provoke them to anger, don't discipline them in anger, and kids obey your parents. And we're like, yep, sounds right to me. Like, 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 like let's move on. Okay, so for the sake of time, that's what we're gonna do. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Uh, and if you wanna know more about that, you can check out the resources in our Faith at Home Center uh, out in the commons, or you can talk to any of our fellowship kids, uh, directors or student pastors or anything like that. And for a shameless plug, you might wanna look at a book, a really interesting book, uh, Different Children, Different Needs, is written by a guy that I know. But um, anyway, uh, there's lots of resources there, but for sake of time, we're gonna move on. But what I want you to see here again, he speaks to the children in the room in an open public service, not done. Children were property. And if anything was to be communicated to wives or children, their husbands was to do, the, the, the husband, the father would do that at home. So Paul is elevating children from simply being property to having incredible dignity and worth. I tell you, he's turning the whole house, household code paradigm on its head. It's not husbands and wives and fathers and children, it's wives and husbands and children and fathers. And again, can't tell you how radical this was when these people came to church on that morning in 62 AD. Now, again, you don't get this with your 21st century lens, you gotta have your first century lens, but make no mistake about it, Paul is elevating the dignity of those who had little or no standing in that culture, and that's what he continues to do in the next section with slaves and masters. Look at it, verse five. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just, just as you would obey Christ, obey them, not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord and not people, because, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he was both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, so let's talk about slavery a minute. Now, we know that in our country, slavery was an ugly reality that was a stain, and still is a stain on our history. And I, and I mean, let's be honest, we're still dealing some, with some of the ramifications of it today. Now, the reality of it is that slavery was and still is an ugly part of world history. Nearly every country on the planet is guilty of having people with, with power and authority enslaving people and abusing people and using people as human tools. And that was very much a part of the history of the people who lived in Bible times as well. Not just in in, in, with Jewish people, but all over the world. And we know that throughout history, in our country, our earlier history, that different people, Christian people, have taken these verses and they've ripped them out of context 
to justify slavery. Um, but we need to understand that slavery back in the first century was different than the slavery in our past here in the South. Like back in Paul's day, slavery was not ethnically based. It was not racial. It wasn't a matter of race. And you need to know that in a city like uh, Ephesus, at least 30% of the people in that city were slaves. And as you walk down the street, you would not be able to tell the difference between a free person and a slave. In fact, many of the slaves would have more opportunity in life and would have more wealth and power than some free people, but still, they had no legal standing or rights whatsoever. They were human tools. And in that day, many people actually sold themselves into slavery as a means of, of survival, and slaves were able, over time, to buy themselves out of slavery if they had the means to do it. Now, the interesting thing is, in that day, nobody had a problem with it. In those days, there was no abolitionist movements like we've heard about in England and, and here in this country. It, slavery was so much accepted that in that world that when people got out of slavery and came into any type of wealth, they would have slaves themselves. So former slaves would be owning slaves. And so Paul was stepping into that culture, that culture in that early church, this church filled with people who were still trying to figure out what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in this time and in this place, and they're living in a society that's trying to figure out what this Jesus movement is all about. Now, here's the thing. If Paul had come straight out and said, look, we, we need to start a movement to get rid of slavery. Man, I'm telling you, if had he done that, there's a good chance, not just within government, but I'm talking within the whole of society, if Paul had said that, it would have been not just radical, but revolutionary, and everyone would have written off the Jesus movement as an attempt to undermine the Roman Empire itself. I'm saying in that day, if Paul had led a crusade to abolish slavery, it would have eclipsed the gospel. And so Paul didn't try to overthrow the structure of that society, but he was undermining it by applying the gospel to it. He addresses slavery by helping people see what it means to live as a follower of Jesus, of loving others the way Jesus loved us in that broken society with the hopes that over time, that it would change culture, which thankfully it did, thanks to Christian abolitionist movements. And so he speaks first to slaves or bond servants, and he says, look, I want you to serve your masters as if you're serving Christ, and I want you to serve them wholeheartedly and with respect. Now this is really odd, and you're gonna have a hard time believing that, but back in that day, there was a tendency for these people to slack off and not work so hard when the boss wasn't looking. And I, I, mean, I, I don't know, I just can't fathom that, but that, that, was, that was going on back in that day. And Paul says, don't do that. Work wholeheartedly all the time, whether they're looking at you or not. And serve them so that they, as if you were serving Jesus, so, uh, they, they will see what Jesus is like in the way that you serve them. And then he says something that, again, back in the day would have been 
so countercultural. It was incomprehensible. Look at it, verse 9, he says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. He just addressed slaves saying, I want you to respect and honor your masters. I want you to serve them wholeheartedly. He turns around to the masters and he says, I want you to treat them the same way that I was telling them to treat you. Remembering that your master who is in heaven, he's your master and their master and he shows no favoritism. That is, God views you as equals. I mean, oh my goodness. Like, he's saying in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, there is no hierarchy. There's no higher, there's no lower, there's no superior, there's no inferior, there's no slave, there's no free, and there cannot be any hierarchical domination or abuse. You see, Paul was trying to change culture. That's why in another letter to another church in Galatia, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ. And Paul is showing how the gospel gets rid of this dominating, authoritative, hierarchical abuse because in God's eyes, all people, rich, poor, those in authority, those under authority, young, old, men, women, black, white, red, yellow, brown, all stand on equal footing at the cross. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are different roles that people play within society. Some people hold positions of authority. Others are under authority. That's not a bad thing. There must be order in society. But he was trying to show that for a follower of Jesus, the mindset of I'm better than you, I'm superior to you, is totally inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. You see how radical this is. In other words, the morning when Paul's letter was read, slaves and masters came to church. And yes, in that society, there were masters and slaves in society. But when they came to church, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. He was trying to bring these masters to the place of, say, of seeing, wow, these slaves who are in church with me right now, they're growing in their faith the same way that I am. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And my brothers and sisters in Christ can never be viewed as my property. He was trying to change culture from underneath with the gospel as the subversive agent of change. And I'm telling you, this was, it was so countercultural. It was so cutting edge. We, we can't even hardly get our minds around it. And when we look back at the first century culture in comparison to our 21st century culture, I mean, yeah, we can definitely say, you know, things have improved. I mean, all kinds of things have changed for the better. I mean, women have all kinds of rights that they never had in Paul's day, or sadly in our early days. And, and there are laws to protect children from uh, abuse. And thankfully in our culture, slavery has been abolished. And yet, would any of us say that when it comes to hierarchical abuse that we've arrived? Absolutely not. We still got a long way to go. I mean, it's kind of like when you look at that, uh, those old rotary dial telephones and compare them to our modern smartphones. Yeah, we can look at those two things and we go, wow, look at how far we come. But is anyone in the smartphone business saying, yep, and we've arrived. 
We, find, we don't even need to uh, uh, keep in, in, uh, researching this. We've arrived. We're at the pinnacle of a smartphone society. Well, of course not. Nobody's going to say that. Everybody knows that in the next few years there's going to be an iPhone 14 and a 15 and then a 20 and then there will be new and improved versions of Samsung Galaxies if there is such a thing. And, uh, uh, and, and, and in the next 20 years, there'll be systems that, who wants a phone that folds in half? That's, I don't understand that. But anyway, uh, but in the next 20 years, there's gonna be systems that come out, communication systems that will make us look at that uh, smartphone that we have like it was the old rotary dial phone. There's, there's always more improvement coming and there's a lot more improvement that needs to happen with us in our society. And when we look at the society in which we live, there's still injustice and hierarchical abuse. And as Christians, we need to stand for the oppressed and those who can't stand for themselves. But I want you to hear what I'm gonna say next. Our stand needs to be influenced by gospel agendas not by government and social agendas that have no regard for God or the gospel. Only the gospel addresses issues of injustice the way they need to be addressed. But there's application here at another level, and that's application that's on the same level that Paul was speaking to the authoritative household code of his day. Like so, let me ask you, when you think about your own life, how are you doing with the people with whom you do life? See, here's the problem. We all have this thing inside of us that wants to make life a story about us. We're the main character in our story and everyone else is supposed to come and play a supporting role. And so we play the game of one-upmanship in nearly every relationship we're in. I mean, I mean, if someone doesn't meet my expectations, if someone doesn't meet my needs, then we don't have a problem moving on if it's best for us because we look out for our own interests and not really that much for the interests of others. But from what Paul says here, what if we were to take this game of one-upmanship in life and we were simply to reverse it? That rather than looking at our lives and constantly thinking, what can that person do for me to make me feel better about myself? Or how can I make, my sh make sure that my needs are being met? Or how can I make sure I get my way? Or how can I make sure that I work things so I get ahead? What if we were willing to become people who come underneath to support and lift up? People who are willing to love and to serve and put others' interests before our own. What would that look like? Well, that's the question, isn't it? In fact, that's the one big idea in question form that Paul is pressing home to us. With all three of these home-based relationships with people in authority and people under authority, I think Paul was trying to say, like, like uh, for husbands and wives, he's saying, husbands, you're not to dominate your wife in any way. Wives, you're not to dominate your husband in any way. Husbands, you're not your wife's supreme authority. Christ is her authority and yours. So husbands, be Jesus to your wife. Love, lower yourself and come underneath her to love her sacrificially and serve her unselfishly. And the wife will go, that's amazing that you're willing to do that for me. I can submit to that. I can come underneath that and support you and hold you up. And so what would that look like in the next argument you have with your 
your spouse. Well, rather than trying to figure out the way to get the last word in, or to make sure you get what you want, it, what if you just simply listened? And you, try, you listened to try to understand and to love and to try to work things out and to defer. Or with your family, what would it look like rather than trying to set everything up so life is comfortable for you, like with your kids, rather than disciplining, disciplining them in anger for making your life more difficult for you because they're kids and that's what they set out to do every morning when they wake up, right? Make my life more difficult. And what if you say to yourself, by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, I'm gonna be patient, I'm gonna come underneath them and I'm gonna love them and I'm gonna serve them and I'm gonna encourage them and try to build them up as best I can to let them know how much I love them and I'm gonna discipline them with loving, appropriate discipline. And for students who are in the room, I know, and you're saying, yeah, I know my parents aren't perfect. I mean, uh, can, can I get an amen from a student in the room? About, probably, if your parents here, probably just sit there and smile. But yeah, you're saying, yeah, I know my parents aren't perfect, but I'm gonna honor my parents, and I'm gonna obey my parents and love my parents because they're my parents, even if they're flawed. What would it look like in our workplaces if, uh, if we had this type of attitude that, Rather than just looking out for number one, what if we said, no, I'll be the one that makes some sacrifices. I'll be the one who comes underneath and tries to help people along. I'll, I, I, I'll be the one that, that gives up my agenda sometimes uh, for, the, for the greater good. I'll be the one to do the job that nobody wants to do. And for supervisors to say, I'm gonna do everything in my power to help the people who are under me. I'm gonna put myself under them to lift them up and make their life better, to help them. Like, like I wanna be the best boss that they're ever gonna have. And I'm gonna love them and serve them and care for them and serve them in the same way that Christ loves and cares and serves me. In other words, you're not enamored by and you don't get your identity from some elevated position in some company. But you truly wanna serve the people under you. And what would it look like for those of you who are employees to say, well, you know, I might not agree with everything that my boss does, and my boss can be a jerk sometime, but I'm, I'm gonna work hard whether he sees my work or not, whether she appreciates my work or not. I'm gonna work hard because I'm gonna do my work as if I were working for Christ himself, and I'll trust him for the greater reward. You see, Paul is showing us what spirit-influenced, gospel-informed, relationships look like. The question is, what if, what if we live this way? If we live this way of reversing the order of things, it would be, it would be life-changing, and it could cause people who have never thought about Jesus to understand for the first time who he truly is and what he's really like because they see how we live with each other and how we love each other the way Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Think about this. As one in authority, Jesus lowered himself to lift us up. As one under authority, he came to serve, not to be served, by submitting himself to the Father's will to give us eternal life. So, here's the one big idea. If you're in authority, lower yourself to lift up those who are under you. And if you are under authority, 
serve those above you wholeheartedly as if you were serving Christ himself. See it? If you are in authority, come under people to lift them up. If you're under authority, serve those above you wholeheartedly as if you were serving Christ himself. That's what it means to submit yourself to one another out of reference for Christ. This is the one big idea in this passage as I understand it. And I tell you, if we were to live this way, if we were to live out gospel-informed relationships, we would show the world and experience ourselves the abundant life that Jesus promised us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you so much for the gift of your son Jesus who perfectly exemplifies everything that we've talked about this morning. And God, I'll be the first to admit, when I look at my relationships with my family and my friends and coworkers and with the people I do life with, Lord, I confess all too often, I just blow it in this area because I'm too focused on them serving me and on them putting my interests before their own rather than it being the other way around. And God, would you help us in all of our relationships to put Jesus on display? Put the way he loved, loves and cares for us on display. I pray that his life would transform the way we live with other people and that we would be willing to be people who love and serve and, and, and come underneath and care for others in the same way you love and serve and care for us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would change our lives day by day, keep changing us, keep working on us. And through changing lives, change our church, change our culture, change our world. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.